Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. There are potentially a lot of different lessons to be learned, even at this early stage in what's going on with uh, Wells Fargo and the continuing revelations that come out about the underlying fraud, the culture of the organization, the intersection with whistleblowers. For this discussion, I'm just going to focus on culture and the deceptively difficult questions around culture that can affect your organization. To me, so far, the most important lesson to be learned from Wells is about the central importance of a positive ethical culture in the performance of an organization. If you look at the underlying fraud involved here, it was not sophisticated at all. It's probably about the least sophisticated sort of fraud you can think of. It's forging documents. Also, the motivations are not that difficult to discern. It's not complex. There were incentives that were in place that did what they were supposed to do. They incentivized people to take certain actions. I don't want to suggest that somehow the Wells Fargo executives that devised the incentive plan had this in mind at all. I'm certain that they didn't, but the results are undeniable as to what they did and sent. And I know that's one of the big takeaways so far from from Wells is that incentives are sort of a sticky wicket and need to be looked at very carefully. But again, I, I want to focus on the culture of the organization because that was a theme that came out very early in this discussion. The executives of Wells, including John Stumpf, were very vocal early on about their perception of a very strong culture. He took a lot of heat from that, including from me and and others who made early comments. But I I think we ought to take a step back. You know, if you watch Mr. Stumpf when he was testifying, and if you take a look at his history and and really listen to his statements about this, I think that it's fair to say that we should take him at his word. And what I mean is, I think that he truly believed and believes that the culture at Wells Fargo was a positive one, that it was a culture that should and did influence people to do the right thing from his perspective. And what this brings up is something that I've seen happen more than once before with other organizations I've worked with. It's this disconnect. A few years ago, I worked with an organization that had been closely held company for many years, that it had been a family company for many years, and had a very positive culture that had grown up around the central part of the operation, the headquarters operation, and, and the original business operations. Over several years, though, the company had been quite successful and had acquired other entities. And I think it's fair to characterize their compliance program as being informal, but it had worked for them. They hadn't had any significant problems over the years. They had a kind of close-knit group of both executives and senior managers that had been in charge for many years and had uh, strong personalities, but, but that had been to the good for the organization. They prided themselves on being very ethical uh, and family-oriented as an organization. But they had acquired a, a subsidiary that was in a different business 
and whose operations were in a different location halfway across the country. The reason that I became involved with the organization is that a rather large fraud had occurred against the company and against its customers in this uh, subsidiary. I came in to help conduct an internal investigation and run interference with with some regulators that were looking into some of the activities. And this was uh, many years ago before corporate culture had become such a buzzword. But again, this was an organization that really perceived itself as having a strong culture. And they were really mystified by the behavior of some of the managers and supervisors that were involved in this conduct in the, the subsidiary. Just as I say now that we ought to take the executives of Wells Fargo perhaps at their word about their perception of the culture, I believed at the time that they were really sincere about this and they just were couldn't have been so wrong about what the culture was like and the facilities and the operations of this organization. I relate all of this because I think that there is a tendency to be very cynical about the statements that are made by somebody like John Stump after the fact about their perception of what was going on in the organization, particularly around things as difficult to not only cultivate, but even measure as culture can be. So let's take him at his word. And if that is the perception that was going on at the headquarters of the bank, what broke down between that level of the organization and the people down in the branches? What happened and what I saw many years ago in this other organization is that the culture that is perceived by the individual employee is local. Culture is local. They hear the messages coming from the head of the organization. They read the letter from the CEO that's on the front of the code of conduct. They get the annual or sometimes more frequent messaging that talks about the importance of doing the right thing and keep cultivating a culture where everybody feels like the rules are to be followed. They hear all of that, but that's not what they hear mostly. What they hear mostly are the messages coming from their local leadership, the people that they interface with on a daily basis, their immediate supervisor, their supervisor's supervisor, the people that they work with in their location, in their branch. Those people are the most influential. I kind of liken it, liken it to uh, what you often hear about raising children, that parents are most important influencers when children are rather small, but as they enter school and get older, their peer group becomes much more influential. I'm rather lucky in that all of my children are under the age of seven, so I still feel like I have a, a good top-down culture message that's being being heard by my constituency. But for people who have older children and teenagers, you will relate, I, I'm sure, to the notion that the peer group, the people that they're with, sometimes uh, the majority of the day, particularly when they're in school, have more influence. Those messages have more influence because they're repeated more often and there are simply more of those messages coming their way. The same is true for your employees. There, there's very few senior executives and CEOs and, and even chief compliance officers who can afford or have the platform to message on a, on a daily or, or, or even weekly basis to individual employees. You just can't do it. It's not possible. I can't imagine a circumstance where where um, senior leadership would be so visible, particularly in a, as the organization gets larger and larger. 
So we, this really all comes down to depending on those local leaders, those supervisors and managers. That's where the tone is set. That's where the culture lives in these organizations. And an organization, whether it's Wells Fargo or a much smaller organization or an organization in a completely different industry or context, is not going to survive and not going to have a positive culture if this isn't addressed. If those rank and file supervisors and managers, the, the vast middle of, of the organization, if you will, are not provided the resources, tools, and training that they need to understand their vital role in compliance specifically, but also culture generally, then you're not going to get the results that you'd expect. And something like this can you know, come out of the woodwork. Let's be clear. Wells Fargo, I'm sure, has a compliance program spend that would boggle the mind of most compliance officers out there that are listening to this podcast. It wasn't for lack of of interest or resources at the top of the organization that this happened. And it wasn't something that could be cured by even adding another 1,000 compliance officers into the organization. It has to do with what's happening on the ground in these operations. Until you change the perspective and the expectations for those managers and ensure that they are as involved in the compliance program as you as the chief compliance officer are, that they have as much invested in in a good culture and in compliance working, then you're going to continue to see these sorts of things happen in organizations all over the place. And you're going to continue to see the executive state with disbelief that the culture is a poisoned culture because that's just not what they perceive. So what can an organization do? What are some easy wins here? I mentioned already that you need to educate and provide resources to the management of the organization, the middle managers. The first step is to let them know how important this is and how important a role they play, a key role, if not the key role, in having an effective ethics and compliance program and having a positive culture. And you don't just tell them that it's an added responsibility and, hey, you know, among the other million things that we tell you to do and the other objectives that we measure for your performance, you also have this added responsibility. That's not how you, how you approach it. You approach it by making the business case. The business case is both you know, elements of what can go wrong, using examples like Wells Fargo to explain to them why this is so vitally important, but also giving them the positive aspects of having a good ethical culture. The fact that you will employ and be able to attract better and more qualified employees, the fact that people will more likely report and come forward with issues before they become the kind of issues that can derail an organization. You can talk about the lost opportunity costs. There are very specific bottom line issues that you can discuss with the management of your organization that can help make the sale to them about the real importance of culture and their important role in defining that culture and maintaining it. The second is providing them regular resources so that this is not only top of mind for them, but then gets cascaded down the level and becomes top of mind for everyone. So on a regular basis, you know, a real simple thing is having some communication materials that go out, say, only on a quarterly basis or a monthly basis if, if you have the resources to do that, so that all managers disseminate this. One thing that I've seen uh, many organizations adopt uh, particular organizations that already have had a strong place safety program is many of those organizations already have managers have a safety minute before any meeting of their team. 
And now uh, many organizations are having a compliance and ethics minute uh, before any, each and every meeting where a particular topic will be discussed. And there will be some give and take between those supervisors and their reports about that topic. You know, creating a space for there to be some discussion and some communication around this, which really allows for people to have that comfort level so that they can come forward and utilize the resources both locally and at the compliance office level if need be. Certainly this relationship and the resources that are made available to managers can be more sophisticated and develop over time. But starting simple, providing quarterly messages, for example, that will be cascaded is a good way to at least start a program, at least initiate the connection. And I think if you look at Wells and you look at some of the other failures that have happened, rather than trying to predict where the next firestorm is going to come from, one of the best things you can do, any organization can do, is invest in trying to get the people more involved in the process because they're going to uncover the next big thing before hopefully it becomes a big thing. And if the culture is positive and there's this give and take and this communication link that has been established between you and the management and the management and their rank and file about these issues, hopefully they will be the canary in the coal mine before your executives end up having to testify on Capitol Hill, for example. That's the goal everybody has in mind. And I think those are some ways to, to address it. And to me, at least so far, that culture piece is really central to the story that's developing around Wells. Welcome to a special three questions with Robert G. Jones, the chairman and CEO of Old National Bancorp. Bob has been with Old National since 2004, and prior to Old National, he served for 25 years at KeyCorp. While Bob has been the CEO and president of Old National, the company has received national recognition on many fronts, including being recognized as one of the world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The bank has also received the Employee Volunteer Program of the Year Award from Volunteer Match and the Award of Excellence for Corporate Engagement by the Points of Light Foundation. Besides the occasional compliance podcast, Bob has appeared on Fox News, Fox Business News, CNBC, and Bloomberg Television as a spokesman for Old National and Community Banking. Bob is deeply committed to the local community and serves on several nonprofit boards and has been personally recognized for his many efforts. Former Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels presented Bob with the Select Sagamore of the Wabash Award and the Distinguished Hoosier Award. And he's been, been inducted into the Evansville Regional Business Hall of Fame and the Evansville Vanderburg School Corporation Hall of Fame. He's also received many other honors, too numerous to mention here, and recognized throughout the communities that Old National serves. Welcome, Bob. Welcome. Uh, so glad to be here. Thank you so much for uh, taking on this very, very important topic. The uh, banking industry has taken a lot of hits over the last few years and even more recently, the last few weeks. And there's been a lot of talk about the culture of the industry being generally poor. How important do you think the ethical culture is to the su success of a bank these days? I think it's the single most important item that any bank or any company has is culture. I often say to people that while we have assets and liabilities, the single most important asset we do have on, as a company is our people and the culture that those people represent. And you know, culture will trump everything every day. One of the points we always look at as we've been very aggressive in mergers and acquisitions is we align via culture rather than realign versus balance sheets or income statements. And it served us very well. And again, I think that culture is just so important. And that's really what banking is all about. It's all about having an honest and trustworthy culture because we're, we're, we're entrusted with people's financial futures. 
And it just strikes me as, as a follow-up to that. Uh, how do you think with some of these organizations, and we don't have to name names necessarily, uh, how do you think that they've gotten so off track? You've been in the industry for a long time. What's, wh- why, do you, why do you think that's happened and how did they lose that connection? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the biggest reason is that uh, we get caught up in what I call short-termitis. You know, we live our day, our, our years in 90-day increments. You know, we release earnings every 90 days, and it's very, very easy to get caught up in meeting the expectations of the investment community and your and your shareholders. And I argue that if you maintain a longer view, that over time your shareholders are going to be rewarded stronger. And and I think that's one of the biggest issues we face is that real strong focus on just short-termism. And we lose sight of what we're really in the business for, which is to create long-term value for our shareholders, our communities, our clients, and our associates. And you mentioned also the, the kind of high pace of consolidation that's going on. And, and you also mentioned the fact that o, OMB has been part of that. You, you guys have been expanding over the last few years, including through acquisition. How, can you talk a little bit about how you do that while maintaining this focus on culture? Yeah. So the first thing we did is we put our um, senior HR executive in charge of all of our integration work. And we do that because she's got a great understanding of our culture and a great way to communicate that culture and to really assimilate folks into the culture. The opposite way you could do that is to put an operational or technology person and you can you can merge systems, you can merge processes, but it's really a lot harder to merge that culture. So with Kendra Vanzo's leadership, we really focus first thing is on culture. And then I, I can't underestimate the value of constant and continual communication. So whether it's verbal communication, written communication, digital communication, anything you do, you ought to always reinforce and, and, and speak to that culture. And and then the most important thing you do is your actions have to be in line with the culture you want to create. And I think that's what people always are looking for. Are they doing exactly what they said they would do? And are they treating the people the way they said they would? And once you do that, it makes it much easier. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the communication piece is often overlooked when, you know, when you're looking at formal training and policy and procedure and the more structured parts of the organization, the compliance organization, but communication is vitally important. Right. You know, I think you hear a lot about the tone at the top and I would argue, and I'm beginning to see more and more other people make this point that it's not so much the tone at the top, it's the tone at the middle. And if you can, as a leader, ensure that the folks at the next layer and the next layer down and the management understand your culture, that's probably far, far more important than just that tone at the top because, you know, the board is uh, 12 people in our case and I'm one person that I've got 10 reports. But then as you move that further and further down, that's where the real difference is if you get that right tone in the middle. And that leads me naturally to my next question. One of the other issues that where culture, I think, is kind of on the front lines these days. I saw a statistic recently that now every day about 10,000 baby boomers are retiring. So we're getting kind of into the teeth of the the, the, the baby boom generation um, leaving the workforce. And a lot of culture obviously is is having both people in the middle and at the top of the organization invested in, in, in providing positive examples, but also cultivating that culture. How do you as an organization maintain a positive culture as workers and key executives move on uh, to the next phase of their life and and leave the organization. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how that process works at OMB? 
Yeah, again, I go back to the point of communication. From day one, when you hire somebody new, you, you start talking about culture. You have examples of the culture, and then you just really make it part of your daily life, and you reinforce it at all times. Culture just can't be a quarterly or a monthly. It's constant, and it's... Um, and, and quite frankly, over time, what you, you, you'll, you'll find happens is that people that want to be in the type of culture that you are, you'll attract them because word of mouth gets out. And, you know, everybody's got a different culture. So ours happens to be a very um, family-focused, very community-focused culture and, you know, with strong values. And we tend to attract people that want to be that, that part of a team. And it, it makes a big difference in today's world because we're able to get some very, very high-quality people that just say, hey, I want to be part of a company that cares about their people and treats people the way they want to be treated. It's sort of the, the chicken or the egg culture question, right? If you've got a good culture, then you do you attract good people or because you had good people, did you build well, a good right. culture and or both? It's a great point. In our case, we really had to create a culture and then, you know, over time, and, and that's my point on the longer view, you know, you just don't change a culture in 90 days. It takes a lot of hard work and a lot of effort to do that. Well, I can't thank you enough, Bob, for spending a little bit of time talking to us about what you're doing and what everyone's doing actually at, at OMB to, to improve the culture of the organization. It's, it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.